Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. This week, we finish up rerunning the three-part series, Influenced by the Cross. The third sermon in this series takes a look at the way Jesus' work on the cross changes our relationship to the very concept of religion. Before we get to that, though, two quick announcements. One, if you're interested in growing in the faith or in learning how to help others grow, then consider applying for the Grace Downtown Discipleship Catalyst. Applications are due this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Two, if you're a member of any Grace DC congregation, then please join us for our annual network-wide members meeting next Sunday, June 7th, at 5 p.m. at Calvary Baptist Church in downtown Washington, D.C. We'll have a special network-wide worship service immediately followed by ministry highlights from our three congregations for the past year, and then we'll review the budgets for each congregation for the coming year and vote on welcoming new leaders at Grace Downtown and Grace Meridian Hill. For more information on both of these events, you can go to gracedc.net slash downtown. Now, here's Glenn. This evening's New Testament reading comes from Colossians 2, 8 to 15, page 4 in your bulletin. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. God, this is a mighty passage of Scripture. It declares things that are beyond our comprehension. And I pray that you would make the light of it clear to us, that we might see you, that we might know you, that no one could leave this place and say, God wasn't in that place. You've been in this place the whole time. So we trust you for this. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've listened to the radio any time this year, 
you've probably heard the refrain, you could have had it all, or we could have had it all. And that's a line that could have been sung by the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, when they gave away paradise, when they thought they could have had a better deal. And when they did so, they introduced into the world lies and emptiness. You see that phrase together, empty deceit. One of the forms of those lies, no doubt, is the lie, well, I'll call it the grass is greener syndrome. And I'm sure you know it well. And that is that belief that it'll be, you know, the next relationship, the next purchase, the next job, the next city, and then I'll be happy. But that's just an effort, really, to deal with the emptiness that we sense. Now, there is emptiness that is real, and then there's emptiness that is really a phantom. We think it's there, but it's not really there. For instance, the emptiness we feel when we have the 3GS instead of the 4S iPhone. Right? And the ads would lead us to believe I'll be miserable. I'm a miserable person until I have that. That would be an example of false emptiness. But both of these temptations, lies and emptiness, are facing this Colossians community. Now the lie can be identified with the word philosophy. Now, that's not Paul condemning traditional Greek philosophy. That's not Paul condemning philosophy. Rather, he's saying that the false belief that it entered the community was called the philosophy. That's what those that had bought into it were naming it. And the philosophy was convincing the Colossians that what God had provided for them in Jesus Christ had given them half a tank instead of a full tank. That the gospel brought you part of the way, but not all the way. That the cross of Christ was not a finishing line, it was more like a plus sign that you had to add different things to. That the provision of God through Jesus Christ really didn't fill you. It didn't fill you all the way up. In fact, we see that word in the passage, and it was a buzzword for those that bought into that philosophy. Paul picks it up to make his point. Now, we're all familiar with what it's like to try to fill ourselves with stuff when we feel empty. It may be uh, we fill ourselves with literal food and drink. It may be that we try to fill ourselves with the stuff that we buy. One thing you can try to fill yourself with is religion. Religion. And what Paul says to this church that he has founded and these people that he loves, there is a big difference between being filled with religion and spirituality and being filled with the gospel of Christianity. There's a big difference. One fills you, the other doesn't fill you. And the difference is seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. We've been looking at the influence of the cross. The difference is seen in that cross by the fullness of the Savior on it and the fullness of the salvation from it. And those are the two things that I want us to look at this evening. The fullness of that Savior and the fullness of the salvation that comes from it. Now, for this philosophy to teach that the cross wasn't enough to save was in effect to say that Christ 
was not enough to save. And Paul totally gets that. That's why he picks up and begins to unveil and talk about the fullness of Jesus Christ. In fact, this letter, probably more than any other letter in the New Testament, is Christ-centered. Unveils the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. And we find it in this verse, For in him the, the whole fullness of deity, that's his divine nature, dwells bodily in flesh and blood. He who is the head of all rule and authority. And as Paul quotes that verse, he's actually referring to something that he had said in chapter 1, which most theologians think was an ancient hymn that the church sang. Let me read you the words to that hymn. And if they don't rhyme, don't get wigged out. Ancient hymns often don't rhyme. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Did you catch that? Jesus Christ, Paul, saying, is eternal God, sovereign creator, sustainer, king and lord of the cosmos, and of the church. That's what he's saying. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where maybe you're with a friend of yours and you're at some sort of social function, maybe it's a party here in the city, and um, they say to you, oh, you know who that is over there, don't you? And you look at what seems to be a seemingly ordinary average person. But then they begin to say, oh, no, that's so-and-so's son. And, you know, so-and-so that has that position and they're worth that, this much money. And they live in that place. And as they begin to describe that person to you, the stature of this person that appeared ordinary just grows and grows and grows in your sight. Listen, if God doesn't do that with you and me, we will never understand who Jesus Christ really is. If God doesn't speak that, it would only make sense, right? God has to let us in on who God is. So unless God begins to tell us, we will never see Jesus as he is. We will see him as another prophet, a moral example. We will see him as a hero that died for a good cause. But we won't understand him this way. Or maybe, even if you buy into that deity, you will see his deity as sort of a definition instead of beauty. It's like, you know, going to an encyclopedia. Well, that would be online because no one actually goes to an encyclopedia anymore, right? And looking up cherry blossom and reading the description or actually going down and seeing the cherry blossoms. There's a big difference, right? Maybe you grew up in the church with a definition of the deity of Jesus, and then you see that, it's like, wow, it unfolds like a cherry blossom, like a flower. And maybe even as I read those words, you felt that growing in you. 
that picture of Christ just growing in you. The fullness of who he, who he could be or is. Now let me ask you a question. If you had opportunity to, uh, and the courage to go talk to that person across the room that your friend pointed out, that person of great stature, would you go and do it? Or would you rather go to an assistant that's in the room or an aide or someone in their entourage? Because if you understand the answer to that question, you'll understand why Paul is so passionate about this point. Because he is saying God had done everything so that you and I could have direct experience with the one whom he just described, Jesus Christ. That God had done everything so that the Colossians could connect one-to-one with him. And yet they were going backwards with this philosophy. If you know something about this letter, and even the historical context, what we know is that someone was acting in the community as if they were a holy tour guide. That they basically had the inside connection to God. They saw themselves as sort of a guru or a shaman. He mentions them in chapter 2, verse 18 that we didn't read. And this person was teaching them if they practiced certain rituals and rites, high-level angels would not only take notice of them, but would begin to watch over them. Archaeologists have actually uncovered some of this. For instance, a magical stone amulet that people would wear around the neck. And this is what it read. Michael, Gabriel, Oriel, Raphael, protect the one who wears this. Now, we find a similar practice today, though, don't we? People carry lucky charms. Someone wears a uh, necklace of their patron saint. Someone prays to their guardian angel. It's live and well today, but as Stevie Wonder sang a long time ago, when you believe in things you don't understand, you suffer. He actually says suffer really cool there. I can't do it. If Russ was preaching, he could do it. Does this nice little turn with his voice. There we go. But Paul is saying to the Colossians, you not only suffer, you will suffer the loss of who God is. Who he meant Jesus to be for you. Paul saying that, He is the fullness of God who is pleased to dwell. And that word dwell has the idea of condescension. That he came low. He came close. That in Jesus Christ, God came face to face, eye to eye, and arm to arm. God doesn't come any closer in any other faith than he does in the Christian faith. Because he comes a real person. And he comes to earth. And he comes right there. And even more so. As Jesus has risen to heaven and he sends his Holy Spirit into the heart of anyone here that would believe, he becomes even closer, soul to soul, spirit to spirit. This is what Paul says. He's not only the fullness of God, but what does he say? You have been filled in him. So why would they allow something to get in between of that? I mean, as it stands right now, they've got at least three things that are in between them and Jesus Christ. Three things. I mean, they got, you know, they got this shaman guy that stands in between. Then he's got the rituals that they're supposed to do. And then they got the angels that they have to go through. All of a sudden, they're three steps away from whom God brought them so close. And this is the mark, my friends, of the religion of men and the religion of world. The religion of men are always trying to put something between you and God. If you look closely, it might be a vision quest or a spiritual pilgrimage. 
It might be levels of meditation or a lectionary of prayers. It might be a pantheon of God or a patron saint. It might be a second baptism or a theological confession. Something standing between you and God. But the good news of the Christian gospel is that nothing, nothing will stand between you and the God that made you and the God that saved you and the God that sustains you. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is about. That's why he came. That nothing would stand between you and him. This is the gospel. That you could be filled with all the fullness of God and not religious junk food. That you might know the fullness of him who fills all in all, as the book of Ephesians says. And as you are filled with him, all that he is fills you. All that he is that fills you, all his character, all his attributes. I mean, let me ask you, how are you going to work for justice if you're not filled with the all-just one? How are you going to grow in holiness if you're not filled with the holy one? How are you going to learn to love people that are really hard to love if you are not filled with the one that has loved you? You must be filled with him if you are to grow. When a lot of times we say to people, hey, you're full of it. What are you full of? What question? You've got to answer that question. What am I full of? Is it that God? Is it the fullness of salvation, of Savior? And if so, we'll get to the fullness of salvation, which is the next point, which means to be saved from debt, slavery, and evil. Now, my dad uh, wasn't one to give lots of advice, but I remember one day we were in the car, and he said to me, Son, don't ever get in debt. Don't ever get in debt. I don't know what led him to say it. I don't know why it was on his heart, but that's what he said to me. And by that, he didn't mean what we call good debt, right? There can be debt that you invest in so that you actually get more back, right? He was talking about the bad kind of debt, the kind of debt that leaves you with nothing, the kind of debt that it's hard to get up out from under, the kind of debt that weighs you down and makes you feel trapped. And I know, many of you know what that feels like. And let me tell you, as bad as that feels, as bad as that is, whether it be house debt or credit card debt or school debt or debt from something you did and you got into that you're not so proud of, as bad as that debt could be, I could tell you there is a debt far worse than that, and it's soul debt. It's to have your sins mortgaged to guilt and condemnation. It's that debt that you carry from that one thing you did years ago or that one night last week or that one word or that one deed. That debt. And no matter how much you tell yourself it's not that bad, and no matter how much your friends say to you, forget about it, and no matter how much the culture says to you, it's okay, it's all right, it stays with you. It stays. And turning to religion won't help you. Turning to religion won't get rid of it. To try to pay for the debt by performing rituals or trying to make up for the debt by making vows. Actually, it will get you farther and farther under it where you feel more and more like that. Maybe some of you are in that place where you feel like I've been trying to deal with my debt with that way and I feel tired. It's like our confession. I feel exhausted. 
Religion has made me a heavier person. I remember one point early on in my Christian journey where my mother and sister said to me, Glenn, you just seem so serious now. You seem so just weighed down. What was I missing? Friends, the only place that I know that can deal with that kind of debt is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the only place that will pay for that sort of debt and take it away. And there won't be a cent of interest because he has no self-interest in why he does it. It is only love and grace by which he takes the debt away. And this is what Paul is telling the Colossians. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, in the Greek-Roman world, if you were in debt, you had to fill out a note in your own handwriting with the amount, and that was the record of debt. So it was legal and personal. Legal and personal. And Paul is saying that our lives testify in that way. When you and I transgress God's law of love, it becomes a record in our own handwriting of what we've done. This is the death that stands before God and His law. And it's legal and it's personal because it's not just sin, it's my sin. And it's your sin. And if you have the guts, if you have the guts to even look beyond word and deed and to look to motive and desire, you realize it's not a short list, it's not a short note. And if you wrote a heading over that debt, you know what it would say? It would say, I owe you to the law of God. I owe you to the law of God. That's what Paul is telling us here. And that's why the cross becomes so special, because that is the place where the transaction is dealt with. It's on the cross of Jesus Christ that your debt is placed on the beloved Son of God. That what the law demands of you, it takes from him. The weight of the law doesn't fall on you, it falls on him. This is what the gospel is telling us. And not just some of our debt, or most of our debt, all of our debt. Because he tells us right here, it's not just one thing, but everything. It's not just that one thing you did a year ago or last week. It's everything, my friends. Past, present, and future. All that debt falls on him. And so at the cross, what is happening is Jesus is nailed. Jesus is nailed by the law for you. And as Jesus is being nailed up against the cross, at the same time, God is nailing another note up to the cross that says, debt forgiven. As sinners are nailing the Son of God to the cross, God is nailing a note of grace above them. And as Jesus Christ is crucified in public, God is declaring in public before the watching world and the listening world, debt canceled. He destroys the document so that the law can't find it and your accuser can no longer find it. It's gone. It's gone. Now every day, you and I get bills in the mail. Except for Sunday. Hallelujah. <laughs> but I can tell you there's one place a Christian will never get a bill from, and that's the law of God. You will never get another bill from the law of God if you become a Christian. 
because there is no more outstanding payment that is due. But let me ask you a question. What would you say to someone that you knew that had this habit of going through old bills? I mean, not just five years ago, seven years ago, ten years ago, but like 20 years ago. They're constantly going through old bills. I'm assuming you would say to them, what are you doing? Those bills are paid for. So then why do you and I constantly keep drudging up what we've done before? The sins that we committed before. It's like God is saying to you, why are you going looking for that thing? The debt was paid. Things were canceled long ago. There's nothing remaining. I know many of you know it, but do you know it? Is that how you feel? Is that how you live? The Christian faith is the only place that will get you debt-free. There is no other religion or spirituality that will get you debt-free. Because the Son of God came expressly to remove the debt. It's a full salvation. What are you doing with your debt? What are you doing with it? But he also saves us from slavery. Paul warns the Colossians that they're in danger of being spiritually kidnapped. That's what that word captive means. It actually means to plunder cargo from a ship. The only issue is you're the cargo. And the way this is happening is they're becoming captive by turning to these religious rules that are being imposed on them, these regulations, abstaining from food, observing certain holy days. Paul actually refers to a couple of the phrases that this philosophy says, like, don't eat, don't touch. You know, the philosophical word for this is asceticism. And I mentioned they do it in part because they believe by it they can gain favor with heavenly beings that will protect them. But the other reason they're doing it is because they believe that there is spiritual power in the doing of it that they can find strength in the doing of it. And boy, that ought to ring true for us, isn't it? I mean, how many times do you think of a vice that you're struggling with, a vice that you're dealing with, and as you really want to get serious about it, the first thing in your mind is, you know, I'm really going to get more serious about my relation with God. I'm going to read more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to go to church more often. What are you doing? You're believing that power is in the doing of it. It was that same problem that Paul was getting at. The belief that in the doing of the thing, I will find the spiritual power that I need. And of course, the gospel doesn't say that. Those are only means by which the Spirit of God brings power to people. And Paul says that it's a real seduction. When he uses that word deceit, the same word is used to talk about the seduction of money. Why is it so seductive? Well, you know, it appeals to our control. Bethany talked about that. It appeals to our sense of control, our sense of self-righteousness, our sense of pride. All these things, it feeds. And so we're drawn to it. We want to do it. That's why there are so many religions in the world. That's why there's a business out of it. Because it runs and it's like an addiction. And Paul is saying that while these things have, you know, this dedication, they have the appearance of power, they're actually powerless to really deal with the sins and struggles that you and I have. They have absolutely no power to help us in the end. A form of godliness, but no power. In fact, they can actually, it, they, they can actually cause you to become more sinful. 
Let me uh, give you an example. Have you ever met someone that is religiously dedicated and dutiful, but at the same time, they are an angry, judgmental, harsh person? Of course you have. Case in point. What happened there? The actually duty and dedication made them a meaner person. This is the Apostle Paul before the Apostle Paul found grace. He was the most diligent and dedicated guy. He was mean as a snake. You didn't want to be around him. He might even kill you. Just the doing of stuff doesn't change the heart. Paul appeals to the Colossians about that. It's only through Christ that we find freedom from slavery of sin. It's only through Christ that you get free of what's over you. And to make that point, Paul says to them, you need to know that what Jesus went through, he went through for you. He's forging this thing about being in Christ, with Christ, that you were buried in Christ, that you were raised with Christ. What in the world does that mean? What does that have to do with you and I dealing with the stuff that we deal with? Well, it has to do with the relationship between sin and the law that I was talking about. Let me give you an example. If a criminal commits a crime, it's funny, but that crime then has power over them. Sometimes we even talk that way. We say, i got this thing hanging over me. Now, that's not what's really hanging over them. What's hanging over them is the law. That's what it is. The crime ignited the law, and that power is hanging over them. And this is the irony. When you see yourself as above the law and commit a crime, you actually go under the law. The law goes over you. Sin works the same way. Paul is saying that when you sin against the law, then you've given it power at that point to judge and condemn you and even sentence you to death. That's why you get the phrase, the law of sin and death. Because it now has power over you that it wouldn't have had before. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that Jesus Christ, as he was buried and raised to life, took that judgment to the grave, suffered it, and he broke the power of it. There was no longer any more power from the law to condemn those that get connected with Jesus Christ. The law has no more negative claim on you anymore. It doesn't have any more power of condemnation over you before. And even better than that, because it gets better. Well, I'll hold off on that. I've got to say two things, though. And that is, God gave us two signs because he's so diligent and zealous that you and I would know that. Paul talks about the circumcision that happened in the Old Testament for Israel. What's circumcision? Well, what is it? It's taking away of flesh, putting away of flesh with blood. And what he means by the circumcision of Christ is Jesus' death was the ultimate circumcision. That is, he gave his entire body, his entire blood, that you and I might get away from sin. But now that that blood has been shed, there's a new sign. It's a bloodless sign. It's the sign of baptism. The sign of water that talks about new life and forgiveness that washes us clean. And that sign testifies. That's why, you know, we're so eager that people have that sign of baptism because that sign will preach to you over and over that the power of sin no longer has condemnation on you that you were alive and you're free. But this is where it gets better because Christ doesn't just deal with the penalty of sin. He deals with the power of sin. He just doesn't deal with the condemnation, but the way sin controls you. The way sin controls you. Have you ever felt like you've been under the control of sin? I think I know the answer to that because I know it from my old life and my new life, and my present life. 
that feeling, that thinking that you're under this control. You know, I am under the finger of this thing. It owns me. It knows my name. And that is not the voice of Christ. And that is not the voice of God. Because Jesus has broken that power through what he has done. Now sometimes what we do is we fool ourselves and we just exchange an old vice for a new vice. You know, you're someone that just maybe ate like crazy and then you just get insane about exercise. Or maybe it's someone that, you know, you didn't do any, and then you get insane about work. I mean, we just sort of flip-flop. It reminds me of that old scene in that old, old film, Airplane, where the guy's like, you know, he says, well, it's a, good, it's a bad week to quit smoking, and then he begins to, like, drink. It's a bad week to drink, and he begins to snort. Bad week, you know, he's just exchanging vice for vice for vice. Sometimes that's what you and I are like. And what our temptation also is to do is to say, you know what I really need is I need the next new thing. That's what the Colossians were doing. Someone strolls into town and goes, I got the next new thing. You're probably struggling with sin. I know some rituals. I know some ways. I also know some angels, by the way. And they're going to really protect you and deliver you from evil. And Paul goes the entire different direction. Paul says, you don't need to be looking for the next new thing. You need to remember what has been done. He remembers the past tense. Look how he uses it. You've been forgiven. You've been buried. You've been raised. Listen, you and I sit there with our struggles and we go, someday, someday, someday I'll get my act together. Someday I'll be stronger. Someday I'll pray harder. Someday I'll read better. Someday I'll get free from that. Paul is saying that someday was that day. That someday was that day. It already happened. The bond was breaking back then. And so you need to go back. If you're wanting to start new, you've got to go back there. I don't know of anything more that will set you free than the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done. What are you trying to get free from? The cross of Jesus is where you need to start. But not only salvation from slavery to close, salvation from evil. Now, some people have, some people can see evil behind men, but they can't see the devil behind evil. You know, they, they only have eyes of this, right? But come on. I mean, there's sometimes evil occurs in this world where we're just like, this, this cannot be human. This is so dark. This is, this is coming from another place. Yet Paul is saying the problem with the Colossians is is they're seeing too much devil and not enough Christ. And, you know, I have to say that I, I know Christians that I think that would describe them. They live much in fear of the enemy of their souls, the accuser of their souls, of what goes bump in the night. And I'll tell you something. The devil will take every inch of fear that you'll give him. He's like a bully that can't do anything really, but he'll take every inch of fear that you give him. He'll take every inch of that ground. The only thing is Christ has staked his flag in the shape of a cross in that ground. And when someone belongs to Jesus Christ, as John said, we looked at it, the devil doesn't touch him. Spiritual evil doesn't have ultimate hold and control over him. Paul is saying that Christ has triumphed over those fears. And he uses this rich image from Roman, you know, in, in Rome, in Roman times, where, you know, a Roman general 
would take his defeated king that he just beat and the warriors left over and the spoils and they would parade straight through the city. They would parade. They would put them on display. And they didn't put them on display so much to say, hey, if any of you do this stuff, we're going to do this to you. They put them on display so that the people would see, look how vulnerable they are. Look how helpless they are. They don't look so scary now, do they? They don't look like they have much now. And that's what Jesus Christ is doing on the cross. And this is, you know, again, the reversal, the irony of what's happening. As evil is stripping Jesus of his clothes, the Son of God stripping him naked as he suffocates and stripping him of his life, he is stripping them of their power. He is disarming them of their power. Wake up the next morning and go, I've been disarmed. There's nothing there. He has defeated the spiritual forces of evil. And that means you and I can stop trying to ward off evil ourselves. Now, maybe the Colossians did it by, you know, trying to do a bunch of rituals. But there's plenty of superstition that goes along, right? I don't know how you might be trying to ward off evil. Maybe it's by, again, hitting that, you know, perfect stride. Some people cross themselves over home plate, and some people cross themselves... You know, uh, when, they, when the plane is about ready to land, I saw that yesterday as I was landing on a plane. guy next to me did it real quick like that. Not that I'm so brave. I'm just going, Jesus, don't let it wreck, you know. I'm just not going to do the sign, you know. We're given to fear, aren't we? You can live in the city and be afraid. The city can be a fearful place to be. And some of us deal with our fear with different things like perfectionism. You know, I'm going to just do everything right. And if I do everything right, I can't, no, no one's going to really get at me. Or you're watching your back all the time. You know, the old adage, keep your, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. And what Paul is saying here is, Colossians, you don't have to do that. You don't have to fear the devil or the devil behind the man. Because he has conquered. He put them to shame. He displayed them without power. Do you see what a full salvation God has given to you? There's not a Savior like this Savior. And the salvation that flows from him comes because of his nature and who he is. It's the fullness of this salvation that will deal with your emptiness. It's the one that's going to make you feel like you are full of life and full of courage and full of hope. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would deliver us from inverting the verse that says, perfect love cast out fear. So many times for us, it's perfect fear casting out love. Please deliver us, God. We thank you for who Jesus is. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We thank you for this extraordinary story of the gospel that was doing so many things at once and a gospel that had so much power. It didn't end that day or the next week, but it spread for thousands of years all over the world to people of every race and class. And here we are, Washington, D.C., 2012, and you're still doing your work. Oh, God, liberate us farther. Take us deeper.
In Christ's name, amen.